whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today is a civil rights lawyer and lifelong theater thespian who uses her legal experience to empower the theater community members to stand up for their rights and create truly safe and equitable spaces. It's Kaya Lyons, everybody! Hi, thank you! So good to to meet you. Beth Amon put us in touch through your work Mm -hmm. at... uh monumental theater company which we will absolutely talk about and a lot of other things but first you're here to talk about our first mistake let me be right out of town let me be the place that you hide we can make our lives on the go run away with me alabama hate sign me up we'll be on the road like some country song won't be long sam you're ready let's go away with me the uh kerrigan and loudermilk do we call it a concept album i guess it's a greatest hits album what would you call it yeah it's um it's a kickstarter album uh Mm. so it's it's not quite a concept album but i think it is their first foray into music streaming and getting their voice out there so whatever you call that in 2011 that is what it is Yes, this would have been kind of a new concept in 2011. This would have been definitely a new thing for people to to get down with. Um, and it's a uh, it's a really interesting examination. I, I will say for early, I had not listened to it. I knew of it, but I had never listened to it. Um, mm. And my first impression that I just want to give out to everybody is restrained, which I will explain in more detail as we get going. But uh, before we get into that, I have to ask, how did our first mistake come into your life? So I think we should start by setting the scene. Um, this album came out in January 2011. I was a sophomore at GW, getting uh, a major a BA in poli-sci, a minor in philosophy, but spending almost all of my time on student theater. Uh, so mm-hmm. The biggest way that this came into my life was in a study room at 2 a.m. after rehearsal, trying to get all of my homework done. And the only motivation I had was listening to contemporary musical theater and looking at my friends who were doing the exact same thing across the table for me. So (laughs) this really was a... uh, a a place of home so this music really feels comforting to me but I think also it was a way for us to connect with each other to say hey did you hear this new thing let's all listen to it in a study room and then put it on stage six months later um okay yeah it wasn't quite six months later but it was something that we were all very invested in and uh Kerrigan and Loudermilk music I think to a certain group of millennials who came through Uh, college around this time 2011 to 2016 this is really something that feels like ours in in a unique way so how did you find out about it in when it came out honestly i can't even remember i Mm -hmm. the best estimation that i have is that i found out about it through natalie weiss Uh, her youtube videos were always on my Mm -hmm. radar i think that's something that a lot of us bonded over when we got college was oh my gosh you know this obscure natalie weiss youtube video of her singing um you know some random song from carrie the musical um (laughs) so i think the first way that she came that this 
album came into my life was seeing Natalie Weiss, her name on the track list and seeing her involvement in Kerrigan and Autumn and then just falling in love with the music and the creators. Awesome. Yeah, that's I, I, I've always that's really interesting in, in that perspective, because you're just enough younger than me where your experience with finding music is probably wildly different than mine. Uh <laughs> Because I never know where to find, I still don't know where to find new music. So I always end up just from people, just hearing mm-hmm. about it from whoever happens to be, you know, telling, oh, you got to hear this, you got to hear that. Mm-hmm. And this was something that I remember crossing my my zone, like that this was a new up and coming duo. They just put out this album. And like I say, it was a new idea. I mean, this idea in like 2011 of Kickstarter was still a relatively new concept not quite brand new but it was relatively new and it was you know the talent on this album what's so interesting looking at the list of people who perform right is those are some heavy hitters (laughs) are uh with i mean so kelly o'hara probably the heaviest hitter uh recent tony award winner matt doyle uh pops Mm -hmm. up there um and like you said uh natalie weiss morgan kerr uh the spring standards make an appearance which was so uh fun fun fact um i don't know all of them (laughs) but i know heather very well from the spring standards yeah she's from wilmington delaware which is where i'm from this is such a small world musical theater we all know each other (laughs) yes but it's so funny that uh the, the, like I got this album, it's like okay, we're going to talk about this. I got the album, and then I was like, wait a minute, what? Like she saw this record, that's so like okay. I'll guess I'll check this out. This is so amazing. That's wild. <laughs> it was really funny. So what did you? I mean, Karen and Loudermilk are such an interesting writing partnership. Yeah. Uh, and have had a, I mean, I guess ostensibly they're still a going concern in theory though their website hasn't really been updated since 2018 with new news in any event right. um they i i in in waiting to talk to you I, I i didn't know very much about them so i stumbled through um some of Bree's youtube videos and clicked on the we're breaking up not really <laughs> video which was super super Iconic. emotional uh, I, well but i also it's so funny because it's like <laughs> jumping in at the end of the story and then being yeah, like oh absolutely. oh wow this gets she's making references to to things that like i don't like don't have watched previous videos at that point so i didn't get but it was clearly like yeah, an incredibly emotional experience so can you tell the people a little who may not know a little bit about kerrigan and louder milk and their sort of their career as you understand it. i absolutely i would be happy to i um I have a, a very long history with Kerrigan and Loudermilk um, from the sidelines because I was, you know, an early adopter of our first mistake. And then I later directed a production of Party Worth Crashing, which was um, one of their, I think, most innovative additions to their own catalog, but also to musical theater, uh, you know, experimentation in general. Um, And then later, I was supposed to direct it another iteration of it again in 2020. So I have some, uh, you know, connections with them. But I think it's really interesting that they actually started as a songwriting duo in about 2006 with Mm -hmm. uh, Henry and Mudge. Um, So they have a history of doing more children's musicals. But they also at the same time have done so many very cool experimental uh, immersive and you know very 
sweeping musicals on a variety of different issues. And it's interesting that you bring up that their website hasn't been updated since 2018, uh, because I agree, I went on it today and I was very surprised that it hadn't been updated since the last time I saw. But I do know that they actually just finished a run of a new musical that they're working on called Justice about Justices mm. Sotomayor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sandra Day O'Connor in, I believe, San Francisco. So they are still okay. working. They mm-hmm. have not entirely broken up, um, which is good because I think that they really complement each other. <laughs> well, and this is the interesting thing I was thinking about watching that breakup video, which I'm going to call it again. She's very clear in the video that they've known each other forever and ever. They're not breaking up, but they're just going to stop. They're going to explore other options. They're going to date other people, mm-hmm. you know, for, for want of a better term. And what I really, but in the video, she stresses that their first show that actually got mounted um, took 15 years from started working on it yes. to off-Broadway production. And it it really struck me this, I don't know what you call it exactly, but this, this disconnect between the speed of the internet mm-hmm. and the speed at which we expect content and how long it takes shows to get mounted it which Absolutely. is like it, i think as the as the information like if you if you graphed it as the one of those things where like as the information age goes up the speed at which it takes shows to get mounted at least in let's say in new york or on a professional level goes mm-hmm. down like down and it's you know we we live in a world where 50 years ago stephen sondheim was able to have three shows win best score in three consecutive tony seasons that is a, a you know a relic of the past it is that is never something that we can conceive of happening again i think you're almost more likely to have two shows in the same year get nominated for best score than do them in consecutive <laughs> years just the way development works like you'd be like oh these both right. came to broadway at the same time that's interesting. exactly the way funding yeah. works all of it it's so much more complicated now yeah and and the way that i think we approach development because shows don't get mounted and taken you know out of town tried out and then brought in they get Mm -hmm. you know they go a a reading and then a workshop and then a regional production and then another workshop and then they sit for a while and there's a a lot more of a a, a curating period and it is just really interesting for me to be like well their website hasn't updated since 2018 so mm, i guess not but of course they're still working it's just way back there in the you know they have nothing to show us yet at the moment and then they do all of a sudden it's like oh we have a show it's like oh you guys have a show and there's still not this you know people might release songs or demos or little bits but they're i think music theater writers especially are pretty precious of the work while it's being worked out you don't want to like release too early and taint the waters or give away the secret or whatever the the tip is for that so true i do think it's interesting though because when you look at their contemporaries like joe iconis or pasik and paul you you see their careers kind of skyrocket extremely fast Mm -hmm. um and they've kind of honestly crafted the sound of modern musicals now you know when gen z complains that some musicals all sound the same they're really talking about one specific sound that is coming from this age of artists But Harrigan and Loudermilk don't sound like that. And I think it's really interesting that they have, I think, in a way, struggled to find their footing in creating those pieces one after the other. And I don't think that that's a bad thing, because I think that what they're doing is so much more individualized each show that they produce. I mean, they went from um, the 
authorized autobiography of Samantha Brown, which then turned into The Mad Ones. Um, mm-hmm. But then they turned around and did Republic, which is a, an adaptation of Henry IV parts one and two in the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It, it, a completely different story, a completely different right. setting, a completely different sound to the music. Um, I think the one string that they have through all of their the stories that they're telling and the the music that they're creating is really a motivation around emotion and making that the primary driver of what songs and stories they're telling that human emotion, which is, I think what also makes their music something that I think is interesting that you talked about was the fact that uh, you, you have to go through so many out of town trials and you don't want everybody to see your work, but before you do it, Harrigan and Loudermilk actually has a history of working the other way around. Um, I mentioned Party Worth Crashing earlier. That show was in the 2010s an opportunity for them to say, hey, do you want to do one of our shows? Great. We will give you access to literally our entire songbook. Go make your own show out of the songs that we've written. And so when I did that show, that's exactly what they did. They send you every single bit of sheet music they have ever created and say, make a show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even even the things that they didn't think were stage ready, things from Tales from the Bad Years that was never officially mounted. Um, so they never gave up on those pieces and they've found their way into other shows. Um, you'll see that, you know, some of the songs from our first mistake end up in the mad ones. Things are kind of retooled, re-envisioned um, until they're ready to be mounted by either Kerrigan and Lottermoke or anybody in the nation. I think it's so interesting. The way that they work, it's slower, but in mm-hmm. some ways it's um, better, <laughs> in my opinion. Well, uh, yeah, and it's 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 interesting, though, that also, as you as you were saying that, it occurred to me that, you know, Pask and Paul have a sound. Joe Iconis has a sound. There's, there's, if you played, a, a, I could probably pick their songs out of a collection. If you're like, oh, that's a Joe Iconis. Like, even if I haven't heard the numbers, I'm like, oh, that's a Joe Iconis song. And there's nothing yep. wrong with that. I don't I don't want to like that that it is it is it is interesting and fun and also very common for composers to have a sound to the way mm-hmm. they, they like their songs to go. But there's a blurb on their website about this album specifically with the philosophy that a good song is a, is good in any genre. And yes. that really is borne out over the I mean very brief, you know, this album's like 45 minutes. It is not very long mm-hmm. at all. And it is borne out throughout it that you know, so when you listen to something like Songs for a New World, you're like, OK, these are all clearly from different shows or different mixes, but they're all definitely written by Jason Robert Brown. There's no question about this. If Absolutely. you had handed me this and said this is a collection of songs from different shows by different people, I wouldn't have instantly been like, nope, that's clearly not true. It, it, they have a very magpie tendency uh, mm-hmm. throughout the album, but there is still a unified sense to them that they're really, really good, like you said. Well, and I think one of the unifying factors of that is the the bravery of them to allow an artist like Vienna Tang to take the first song. Meanwhile, there's so many things that I don't understand. I don't know why I tremble when you reach for my hand. I didn't know how to love until you swept me away.
and then bookend it with a reimagining of one of their songs that is already on the album by the Spring Standards. Let me be a ride out of town. Let me be the place that you hide. We can make our lives on the go. Run away with me. Alabama heat sign me up. We'll be on the road like some country song. Won't be long. We'll be ready. Let's go. I think it was their attempt to show that these songs really do speak for themselves. And mm -hmm. it's the lyricism, it's the musicality, and they can adapt to different forms and styles, and it always remains what it is. And I think that that really speaks to the strength of them as a duo and the work that they're trying to do. And to come out in your first CD and kind of stake a claim in that and say, this is who we are as artists, we aren't going to tie ourselves to one sound or one uh, envisioning of the song that we created is really pretty remarkable, especially when you compare them to their contemporaries who have a very clear and uh, I think immovable vision of exactly how their sound is supposed to come across to the audience. But it, it can work against you. I mean, that's the other side of it is the fact that if your scores are not instantly recognizable as yours if there's not that you know mm -hmm. uh, that that Kerrigan and Loudermilk sound then it's harder for people to glom onto it as like oh we want to hear Joe Iconis music what's that oh this is what that is oh I get it you know like it has a thing and it, it's got a push for it it's a much more artistically ambitious way to work though that the Kerrigan and Loudermilk are working under um and probably I would say ultimately resulting in such a diverse catalog that it's also ultimately more interesting to listen to their music. But I feel like when you're working online, especially it can really, really work against you in a, in a short term way anyway, mm -hmm. that you're not, you're not churning out the the hits in quite the same right. kind of way. There's no right or wrong yeah, way to no... do it. It's just advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. Exactly. And there's no there's no formula, I think. And mm -hmm. to to a certain extent, I think that that's what a lot of, uh, you know, Gen Z and some millennials like on TikTok and other, you know, fora are complaining against of, you know, Classic and Paul, every movie's the same. It always sounds the same. It's like there's a, a formula, there's a mechanic to it that you just kind of know exactly what you're going to get when you walk in. Um, and so I agree with you. It certainly does work against them in the short term and in the long term. You know, I think that that's why we haven't seen them reach the level of success that some of their peers have. But I know that they have a, a stronghold on the people who are their fans. They get mm -hmm. it, you know. Um, and so I think in that respect, they kind of maintain a little bit more of their artistic integrity in that vision, which I, I respect them for. But I absolutely see your point. Yeah, it's certainly I think it leads to a a maybe shallower, but uh, but actually, no, that's not the word I'm looking for. A, a, a narrower, but deeper fan base. That's the sort of uh, that's the metaphor I want to go. Exactly. With, Absolutely. It's maybe a smaller group, but they are very dedicated to you and what you're doing. And I mean, it should be said, this album, you know, was done in Kickstarter in the early days of Kickstarter. It, they mm -hmm. raised ten thousand dollars to make it, which is no small amount of money, especially in 2011. And it did hit number one on the singer songwriter charts on iTunes. So 
people paid for it and then bought it, you know, so they paid for it twice (laughs) and it, it clearly is. So that speaks volumes to the fact that there was a, a, a dedicated group of people willing to put their money where their mouth was and who wanted to hear this album. And it was not, it's still in print. It was not hard to find when I went, went and got it. So like, it's, 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 it's certainly an an interesting little tour, but they have this, you know, I uh, listening to it and, and kind of, absorbing it one thing i did notice about all the songs and i wonder if you you think this as well having a deeper knowledge of their their catalog than i do is there is a definite linking theme of uh melancholy to to this sort of oh yeah oh song? yeah okay good that wasn't just me okay good <laughs> no I'm not, not bringing too much to this okay good <laughs> because no. you, like to to like it, it's it's not the only one, but it's the bleakest one from the title, which is last week's alcohol, which obviously I was very interested to hear with Matt Doyle singing and 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 mm-hmm. all that. But it is a like that's not a happy song. I know you and you're not here yet. Might be the spear off for all the natty light. Yes, it is weak, but there's And it is not alone on this on this album. No, it is not. Sense. But you know what? This album, when I first started listening to this album, I was leaving the bar and crying in my room to Robin, you know? So <laughs> there's a certain level of reality <laughs> to the melancholy of this album. And I think it's really interesting, too, because so much of their work uh, in this and in uh, the other shows that they've done like Samantha Brown, like Tales from the Bad Years, they are really analyzing a very specific part of your life. And it's a very emotionally rife part of your life in that mid-20s, 20-something world where everything really is life or death. And you Mm -hmm. are very sad most of the time because you are never reaching the goals you were told you were supposed to reach by that age. You never Mm -hmm. make enough money to be happy. You never see your friends enough because you're working and grinding towards these goals. And you're told that somehow at the end of it, you're going to have the life that you dreamed of. And then by the time you're 32, like I am, you realize uh, not probably not so much, but uh, they're really talking about a very emotional time. And last week's alcohol is one of those songs. There's a couplet of songs in this album specifically that speak to the college female experience. When you come into college as a woman in your freshman year, you make a whole new group of friends. You feel like you're split into two worlds. And then when you go home for winter break, you feel like you're not yourself anymore and you're slipping into these shoes that no longer fit and that is my heart is split i read non-stop to quell the absence i drink too much i fall in love too experience at a very specific time and yet I feel that they do such a great job in their lyricism of not spoon feeding you that setting Mm. they allow 
the lyricism, the poetry, and the emotion to be the driving force in both of those songs where you can't, you understand who's speaking, you understand what they're talking about, but they're not saying, I'm a college girl and I feel X. You know, mm -hmm. they're they're really allowing you to relate your own experiences to that moment. And perhaps if you saw it on stage with a different context, it would mean something else. But uh, the song speaks for itself, but it also, you know, spoke to me in that moment, in my specific instance, uh, where I think, you know, some Broadway shows just can't do that. They're great songs, but they only relate to the one specific context in a specific scene. So um, I, I really appreciate those aspects of this album and their other albums. Well, and the songs have no, I want to say they have no setup. That might be quite the right mm -hmm. word, but they don't like... They are standalone pieces. There's no, yes. there's, there's no dialogue. There's no, there's no, there's no preamble in the, in the, in the song that, that sets time, place, location, anything like that. No, it especially is... last week's alcohol, like you mentioned, mm -hmm. last week's alcohol yeah. is what, like two minutes of music before yes. you start speaking. Before he starts about, singing. Yeah. You know, about being on a dance floor, you, you get mm -hmm. nothing. And yeah. even then they use the pronoun you like, twice and you don't know if that means the same you or if he's speaking to two different people it can actually mean whatever you want it to mean in some cases mm -hmm. like um that is i think one of the most unique musical theater songs i've almost ever heard in that mm. like how I, I used it in party worth crashing in a very specific way but i think that you can use that in a lot of different ways to have music for that long that's not necessarily going to be choreographed and certainly mm. when you're listening to it in your headphones on the Metro, it, it's not going to have the same effect as like an act one, you know, ender where you're picturing tap dancing. But it is two minutes of just music, essentially, mm. leading into a man talking about how he's on a dance floor, but his girlfriend is texting him. At least that's what we can tell from context clues, but maybe that's not actually it. But at the end of it, I am feeling something and that thing is melancholy. And I feel like I, I am that person <laughs> with those <laughs> ideas. And then, and then you see, you know, the vision of the narration of her coming back and then talking at the end. But what does that actually look like? I, I, I think that that is one of the moments when I was listening to this back in 2011 that I was like, wow, this is what theater could be. This could be mm. the future of theater because it's unlike anything I had heard of up until that point. And that was so exciting to be kind of on the the front lines, like the precipice of what innovation we could see in the next decade. Um, and it's what made me excited to see what they would do next. That's really great. I mean, so when you were you you stud you were studying poli sci you said at GW. Yeah, poli sci and philosophy. Very exciting. And philosophy, but you were you were not studying. So theater was a a, a, a sideline to your act to your studies. Uh, even though it yes. seems to be where where your heart firmly lies. Uh, I think my mom would have called it a distraction at the time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I've well, always lived in these two worlds. It's always been uh, kind of difficult for me, and it's it's only honestly in the last two years that I finally found my footing in both and felt like I have really been able to meld the two. Um, I'm actually kind of the black sheep in my family of, you know, my immediate siblings for not going into the, the arts. My sister is an actor. My brother is a double bassist getting his master's right now. And my mom directed the shows at my high school. My dad, you know, constructed the set. So theater has always been 
a part oh, okay. of my identity and I had, you know, a history of performing and I, I love theater, but in my heart of hearts, I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I, I woke up when I was four hmm. years old and said, I want to be a lawyer, not even quite knowing what that meant, but knowing that that's what I needed to do. And that never changed. And it was always really hard for me to know that, you know, while I'm studying, say, at GW and I'm getting this degree and I'm very, very passionate about it, that's half of me. Like, my heart yeah. is split <laughs> down the middle of being so passionate about civil rights and the ways that law and words can change lives for better or for worse and working for change. But then on the other hand, loving theater, loving storytelling, loving performance and the, the things that art can do for the world and not really knowing where I sat in either. And even in law school, I performed in the law school musicals every year, which are a thing. Uh, and, you know, I'd get off stage and people would be like, why are you here? Why are you in law school? <laughs> But, you know, when I'm with theater people, they're like, why are you here? You're a lawyer. So, <laughs> I, I never really felt like I belonged in either either spot. Um, but you're right. This is truly like something that I am absolutely passionate about. And so in uh, my current life, I get to do both. I am a lawyer during the day. Uh, I wear many hats, but I'm a lawyer during the day. And, you know, I'm filing amicus briefs in courts across the country and working on federal rules of evidence. And then at night I go to theaters in D.C. and I'm a house manager and I am, you know, working on the ground, making sure that people have access to accessibility devices and people are getting safely into the theater and able to experience art specifically after a pandemic and making sure that that space is alive and well. And then I'm also the chair of the Board of Monumental Theater Company, where I get to, uh, you know, help foster a new company with fresh ideas and uh, make sure that there is, you know, a future for artists in that capacity, too. And I can't believe that there's an and at the end of that. Um, I'm also a theater policy consultant. So um, I'm very thankful that Monumental gave me my first opportunity a couple of years ago to create a policy against discrimination and harassment that is essentially my dream policy. My background is in employment discrimination and sex harassment litigation. And so um, I've been able to meld the two worlds in one way for the first time in my life and be able to provide to theaters the uh, policies, procedures, and uh, you know a code of ethics for how we bring people into our spaces and protect them from harms, be they verbal, physical, or systemic. Um, and that is really, truly the, uh, the passion, I think, of my career is making sure that every theater, no matter how small, has access to, you know, a structure for how to bring people into their spaces and keep them safe. Um, and so not every theater is going to be interested in that, but the ones that have been have been an absolute joy to work with. And um, it's something that I'm very, very excited about. So is it the sense of justice that you as a, as a kid were attracted to or was it because I mean, lawyers and performers are not that different. It's no, not they a are not. <laughs> crew there is a certain amount i mean not every lawyer in fact most lawyers are not trial lawyers mm -hmm. but trial is a debate and debate yes. is a performance so like it mm -hmm. is a very the, the two do go do go hand in hand um and so it does not surprise me at all that the lawyers had a, a musical club um and, oh, uh, yeah. and all that other 
uh, honestly, wonderful. some of the best performers that I've seen have been lawyers, have been mm-hmm. on that stage. And I think that it's so true in theater and law. They are both industries where you can kind of say to somebody who is thinking about going to law school or thinking about becoming a performer, like, can you imagine yourself doing anything else with your life? If you can, go do that. You know, Mm -hmm. these are industries where you really have to commit yourself to a a lot of hard work within yourself, within your industry. And it's something that like you really cannot live without. It's something that is your passion of your life. And so um, I really think that a lot of extremely talented people become lawyers because that is truly what they want to do with their lives and the way that they want to, you know, contribute to their community. And uh, that was certainly my path. Um, But I think that you're right that it's justice. And I think particularly since 2016, when I graduated from law school and the world turned upside down, Mm -hmm. um, for me, the biggest through line has been storytelling. I think before then, I worked under the assumption, and I think a lot of the world did, that if you change the law, you change the world. You know, we passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and suddenly Title VII is making sure that everybody has equal rights in the workplace. You know, later on down the line, we passed Title IX, and now all student athletes are the same. You know, we have these ideas that these are sweeping laws that are going to change the nation, and now we're okay, and we can move on. And that's not how change works. Mm -hmm. And that's something that um, was really eye-opening for me, especially after going through three years of law school and then realizing that my, you know, view of the world that had been kind of crammed down my throat for the last three years at least was completely upside down. And the fact is stories change people's minds. Mm -hmm. If you tell somebody you have to do something because the law says that that you have to, That's not enough motivation, but empathy, seeing a story and seeing yourself in that and seeing the way that other people have dignity, have humanity, have everything that you want and need in your life the same way. Like that is really what is going to change minds and make the world a a better, more empathetic place. And that is found in art. And so I think it's so interesting, you know, when we had a large conversation about gay marriage uh, before the Obergefell decision in 2013, what happened right before that? Modern Family showed Mm -hmm. a gay couple who had a beautiful marriage, who had a beautiful daughter, and the world started to kind of open up to that idea a lot more. Obviously, things are much different now. It's a different world. But I think in so many ways, we have examples where in order for ideas and minds to really change about a topic that they've been entrenched against for so long, it's not going to be a law that changes that. The law will come next. The law will always change based on public perception. And the thing that's going to change public perception is always going to be stories. And that's where theater comes in. Um, So to me, it's it's hand in hand. The work that I'm doing, you know, writing amicus briefs and doing what I can in my legal industry, like that means nothing if art isn't there to make sure that stories are being told by the people who need to tell them the most. 
Well, and it's an interesting Ouroboros you've created there a little bit where it's, it's yeah, sort right? of, <laughs> but, but, but in order to create the art, we do need the laws to create the structure so that people could be exactly. safe to create the art. And yeah, and it, it, it just yep. goes around. You know. <laughs> it does. Is, it absolutely does. Which is great. I mean, it should, it should feedback. I mean, gosh, there's so much in what you just said. It, it's, I mean, it speaks to me a lot in the sense of, I, I have oft railed on this podcast against our, our cultural belief in the happy ending. Um mm. Mm-hmm. just in the sense that the story stops uh, and how that is a very right. damaging, like you say, it's a lot of things that we do uh, as a society are goal oriented and we do this mm-hmm. and everything will be okay. We just do this and everything will be okay. And it's simply not true. Like you say, it, you have to constantly guard the gates. There's no, there's no stopping that. And the, yep. the, 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 the play that, that art and and media has in that in in both the good and the bad is very very important and i i hope i don't think we are as much as i want us to be but we're 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 reckoning with that a little bit after 20 30 40 50 years of movies about you know lone wolves and conspiracies and you know everybody doubted him but he was right has now totally backfired mm. on us from a societal standpoint exactly uh, yep it works it, on both sides it does and it works mm-hmm. but i think that people really just, I, I i mean i teach i teach media studies so like it, it's foreground in my mind all the time um but I really Absolutely. don't feel like enough people are talking about that. <laughs> that it's like we have to really be careful what kind of stories we tell. Like looking at the aggregate, looking at the like, mm-hmm. what is it about? And we saw a lot of that. I think at the Oscars with uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, winning Best Picture. Yes. I think one of the reasons that movie resonates with the people who saw it, including myself, is that to me. And I am, in fairness, right now trying out a lecture I'm about to give tomorrow to students. So, like, forgive me if this gets a little tonally weird. But uh, to me, it's a movie about living with the internet. It is about the cultural divide between the the, the cultural divide between generations of people who, like me, who had had the internet as kids, but it was still very mm-hmm. much on the computer. It was dial up, or it was it was isolated. It was it was in a room in the house. It was somewhere else. It was in our dorm. It was not in our pocket. And people who mm-hmm. experience everything all of the time, which is my kids and 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 even your generation and and slightly slightly younger than you, this is an omnipresent force and how that messes with your brain and how it makes life very yeah. hard sometimes, you know, very, very difficult. I wonder what you think about this. Theater and the internet are so not incongruous, but they 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 work so well together sometimes and in other ways they are completely <laughs> you know it's like the oil and water they just can't yes. they can't blend and as your work i mean every theater tries to have an online presence a lot of them fail and i think because the two parts of your brain the kind that makes internet content and the kind that makes theater content don't don't go together in any kind of way uh no. and i just wonder what you what you think about the sort of struggles especially seeing that firsthand when working with something like monumental who has to has to reckon with that in a very real way yeah i think i love this question because i think it is something that no one has quite figured out yet and mm-hmm. somebody uh who I think has gotten pretty close to understanding exactly how to navigate how much information to put out there. Cause I think that that's truly the question, right? Mm. When we're talking about everything, everywhere, all at once, people have all the information in the world at their fingertips all the time. So when you're talking about a theater production, I mean, you either do the Barlow and Bear and you make 
every single part of your process available to your audience, or you do the shucked and give mm -hmm. them itty bitty little kernels, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, to, to try to figure out this mystery and figure out what do I not know? Because there's no way I can know. And that is going to eat me alive. And so I have to see the show. I have to go physically to New York to know what I am missing out on. And I mm -hmm. think that it's finding a balance between the two, but I think shucked is winning right now because you have so many theater audiences who already know everything. They've mm -hmm. seen every single show. And if they haven't seen it, they've listened to it on Spotify. They have access to anything they could ever want. So why would they want you is I think always the question. And I, I think that it can backfire on both sides of that spectrum. So you're trying to find that happy medium. I don't know if any, any theater really truly has. Um, but when we think about like viral marketing campaigns for theaters, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is bad Cinderella and who wants to see that, you know? So it's like, when, when will the good art win when it comes to marketing? Can we talk about bad Cinderella for, well, forever, but for like, just like the next five minutes, because in this specific context, I yes. think this is like the most Andrew Lloyd Webber thing that has ever happened Yes, it is. And as a Stephen Sondheim stan, I feel like a an absolute winner right now. Well, I've so here's never the, felt yeah. so vindicated. I mean, it it actually Weber's a complicated man with a complicated legacy, and 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 a lot of and the the book is not done, so we will not we will not bury him until Very he true. is dead. But <laughs> the 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 funny thing about him to me has always been that he doesn't really understand how how people think, how people function. And in the best parts of his career, that's worked in his advantage because he's mm -hmm. always working against like it, 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 it bears remembering that his first two huge successes, Jesus Christ, Superstar and Evita are incongruous concepts that people never wanted to produce. You know I mean? It's not mm -hmm. like these weren't the typical musicals of the time. And then that mm -hmm. culminates at its apex with cats, which is like nobody wanted to see cats. And it was a and then suddenly everybody had to see cats. Like he was right yeah. at the right place. But he's always marched to this own drummer of, of his. Absolutely. Since like 87, that drummer has been Buck Wild. And because he's had for the first time since Phantom, all mm -hmm. of like nothing to prove and all of the access. So yep. Had Cinderella being this like from the the intro where she spray painted the sign, which God, who thought that was a good idea? To the my favorite thing in the world that has happened, like since Diana probably. Came out, oh God! <laughs> is the like when they released the bootleg of the of the one number? You know, yeah. like every bootleg, it's pro shot on three from three different angles and precisely edited together. So I was like, guys, you just don't understand. What are you trying to do here? Exactly. Exactly. Who is it's, this for? <laughs> it's just, it's so obvious that they have multiple accounts run by the same marketing team. It's not like there are actual stands of Bad Cinderella out there getting right. bootlegs of this show. It's, it's coming off as so disingenuous. I... I just don't understand why we're putting so much money and time and effort towards it. But it's very interesting because I think they've done some smart things by leaning mm -hmm. into the camp. 
And I almost don't even want to say camp because I don't think it deserves that title. But they have, they've been leaning into the fact that people think that it's going to be terrible. And it probably mm-hmm. is. You know, so for it's that, I will give gambit. them credit. Sure. It's a, <laughs> yeah, a gambit and a gamble. Um, I can't see it lasting. But, you know, mm. who cares? Because like you said, the stakes are so low for yeah. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yes. They're not low for his actors. They are not low for his crew and his designers and the people who need to be employed, but they are very low for him. And so, you know, who cares <laughs> in Andrew Lloyd Webber's world? You know, you know, my biggest gripe against Andrew Lloyd Webber, and I don't Ooh. care if he hates me for this because he'll never hear this. You might be overestimating the reach of this podcast. Exactly. But exactly. <laughs> My biggest gripe with Andrew Lloyd Webber is the fact that he finds one, maybe eight bar melody that he likes, and he will copy and paste that mm-hmm. into a full song and just jerry rig any words he wants into it. It does not matter if it flows. It does not matter if it makes, you know, lyrical sense as long as it pushes forward the plot or the character and he gets that, you know, eight bar riff that he loves. That's a song to him. It drives me nuts. I can identify every single song that he's had like that. And some they're sometimes they're crowd favorites and I'll never understand it because it's just the laziest copy paste job in the world to me. And that that is my uh biggest gripe against And they're him. catchy. They're catchy <laughs> as all hell. They're I mean it's catchy, it... but they're lazy as all hell. <laughs> well, but those two things can go hand in hand. Very like That's I mean, because catchiness often comes from repetition and you know that so if you repeat something mm-hmm. enough people will i mean sondheim has said about his own work like the reason people walk out of the theater whistling a weekend in the country for intermission is because mm-hmm. they sing the phrase weekend in the country over and over again for seven minutes and it's a great song that is very true. But like and it's a great refrain but it is very very repetitive and mm-hmm. he i mean i think it's also the fact that like lloyd weber is at his heart a a pop composer he is not, of the like 1960s variety. very true he he really he and tim yeah. rice wanted to be songwriters for elvis they wanted to be songwriters for that generation of pop stars and that is the sensibility he has simply carried with him all the way through mm. with a base in fact i mean he has training as a musician he has training as a composer he has the tools he has an excellent you know base to work from and the hits speak for themselves but he's he's churning out tunes you know he's not crafting themes he's not compositionally thinking about a, you know it's just he might be thinking about in terms of like yes. minor keys major keys or what kind of orchestra this is going to have but in general we're writing songs here folks so like he's got a trunk mm-hmm. he's got stuff he's just going to start pulling from whatever variety it's a recognized think, technique you know yeah and i think that that's the exact same technique he brings into choosing what shows to do you know, see, that's the um, question I really have. My real question ultimately ends up being, how do you pick your material, man? Because like it's all over the place. And I, no, don't I think I think know. he just he has a whim, and he's like, "Yep, put millions of dollars behind that idea." Like it's just whatever I mean, fits his fancy at the time. I guess it's wild to me that discography. I guess when <laughs> when you've got it, you know, like why why not? I guess would be like exactly. It's his money; he could spend it how he wants to. I guess, but mm-hmm. yeah. In it anyway. How did we end up at Andrew Lloyd Webber for credit? Uh, Marketing <laughs> all rolls in it, right? Which is, I mean, and that is the legacy of it, you know, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Uh, but 
And it's well, but it, and it is an interesting contrast. I mean, I don't think we've mentioned for people who don't know Kerrigan and Loudermilk are a unlike Pasig and Paul, who are music and lyrics by Pasig and Paul. The, the, this is Brie Loudermilk writes the music, Kate Kerrigan writes the lyrics, and they are yep. a, a traditional, you know, in that sort of Rodgers and Hammerstein style of songwriting. Um, which is actually mm-hmm. in that breakup video, what Brie talks about is that Kate's just going to be submitted as lyricist for other projects. And then she talks about how she's worked with other lyricists and like this shouldn't be a big deal. But it is interesting that partnership when you have something so like if Pasek and Paul split, you imagine they would simply write by themselves. It would just be Pasek and Paul. You know what I mean? It's like mm-hmm. Lennon McCartney. Just, they would just go on their own directions. Right. But when you're this kind of focused as a team, you really need, you need somebody else. You need a, you know, a lyricist needs a composer and a composer needs a lyricist. If you can't, if you don't do both, you're sunk without the other person. Exactly. There's nothing <laughs> no, to that's, bring. That's exactly right. It's, and I think with them, they, they really do when they are hitting their stride, you can't imagine one without the other. You really can't mm-hmm. because they complement each other so well, um, which is why it's kind of heartbreaking that they haven't found more success because, you know, it, it really feels like sometimes they they capture lightning in a bottle. And so y- you want to see them on a bigger stage. But I, mm-hmm. I trust that whatever they're working on is, is good because I've left so much of their past work. Um, but I, I agree. It, it would be, I think, hard for them to exist in the same way without the other. Well, and it's so funny. I don't know what... I mean, reading through, like you said, you gave a good summary of, of the other shows that they have. They have some theater for young audiences. They have some uh, some very interesting conceptual adaptations, but mm-hmm. none of it screams Broadway run to me at all. And it's not something they've, they've yeah. seemed to roll at. They do a lot of off-Broadway stuff, which is, just seems to be where like I, I, I see their stuff succeeding off-Broadway and probably on the West End uh, as a, yeah. a a more marketable venue for their for their material. Um but it can be a very lonely place to work. I feel like for 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 that uh, those those sorts of you know it's great success and it works. But those shows come like I mean one of the things that I really recommend, I'm going to link to this video in the show notes. I think because one of the interesting things about it is that Bree's very open about a how long things take, but b how quickly they kind of disappear. I mean this whole video comes from the fact that a show they were going to do got canceled, mm-hmm. and it really how that like that can just happen and is devastating when it does. Like it just vanishes and it's gone. Like you yeah. know, the world just opens up underneath you and suddenly there's nothing there. And mm-hmm. it's a very real struggle. And one of the things I appreciate about the video was how open she was in discussing that issue, because that's something like people do not like to talk about because it's really scary. Absolutely. And I mean, if that's something that you have been putting your heart and soul and time and effort and money into for years and years and years, I think most industries, you see something come out of that. You see a mm-hmm. product at the end of the day, you see a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and when that doesn't happen, especially in this industry, where do you go from there? And I think that that's why they have so many projects running at once sometimes, um, mm-hmm. which is a smart move, but I think it can be confusing to the casual listener who looks at all of these projects and they're like, what is the through line? Mm-hmm. How are any of these related? Um, yeah. I I will say though, I think one of the through lines that I've seen from watching them for so long is a 
I think a an emphasis on innovation of mm-hmm. the form uh, of the form of theater. They did a production of the Bad Years, which was a, a reinvention of a show that they had really only done um, like a reading of. There's a really fantastic series of YouTube videos that I've watched too many times in the last ten years of this one concert that they did one time, essentially of Tales from the Bad Years, and then they remounted it like almost ten years later in an actual house and it was a house party that you could walk through and Mm. that is something that i think is just so cool it's not something that can be on broadway but it's not something that should either you know that is a a really cool concept that i haven't seen done before that could be replicated but certainly wouldn't be replicated on the scale to which we would see you know a a joe iconis show being done you know by high schools across the country um but it is one of the coolest pieces of musical theater that I've heard about in the last 10 years, because mm-hmm. how awesome to walk through a house party <laughs> where these yeah. songs are playing. Um, I mean, last week's alcohol playing right in front of you while you're on the dance floor too. That's a really cool concept that is extremely mm-hmm. hard to pull off. So it makes sense that it would take so long between mountings because like, how else would it, you know, <laughs> that right. timeline is it has to be extended. Um, and that's, that's, I think what also happened though, is that, you know, 2020 and theater going dark for as long as it did, I think has going, is going to have repercussions down the line that we don't even see right now for projects and artists that had the, uh, the rug pulled out from under them in the way that we just discussed. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sad, but I'm really hoping that they come back better than ever with a new project. Maybe it's justice. Maybe it's something else that they're working on um, so that we can get that excitement again in the room. I, I want to ask you a little bit more specifically though, about your, before we, we wrap up here about your, your mm-hmm. legal work, especially with your legal work with, with theater. Uh, what, what form does that say? I mean, aside from the direct involvement with, with monumental and obviously implementing policies and working uh, on their board and, and things like mm-hmm. that. What, what do you do? How, how do you, how do your efforts extend into the broader community if they do yeah they absolutely do so i work with theaters uh predominantly small theaters with less than 15 employees but also regional theaters uh, like studio i'm working with them right now on their policies uh and i work with them to essentially fill the gap uh there are lots of really great civil rights laws that mandate you know how employment scenarios are supposed to work how public accommodations are supposed to work Uh, those don't apply to a lot of theaters and a lot of theaters do not have to, you know, comply with equity regulations and contracts because they don't, you know, hire equity actors. So right. what I do is I work with those smaller theaters to create their own custom made uh, policies and procedures to make sure that there are certain behaviors that are not uh, acceptable in their spaces, be they rehearsal rooms actual performances, virtual spaces like the one that we're in now uh, to make sure that people are not, you know, having to take some of the unfortunate realities that have been prevalent for so long in this industry anymore. You know, I think after 2017, we really expected to see a reckoning in theater in the same way that we did the entertainment industry and a few other industries. Mm -hmm. And I think notoriously, that New York Times article never came out or, you know, that story 
ever made its way out of, you know, gossip circles. There are certainly some prominent individuals that we can think of off the top of our heads that have been, you know, you know, held to account for their actions in certain specific theaters, but there really hasn't been an industry-wide reckoning of what is it that we make our community go through in order mm -hmm. to create the art that we want to create. There are certain standards that are or should not be acceptable that unfortunately are in some spaces. And I think that there are so many ways that we could do so much better. So what I said earlier was gap filling. And I think part of it is that is making sure that the same standards of, you know, base level federal civil rights ideas also apply to these theater spaces, right? Like let's not discriminate against people based on their race, their religion, their sex or gender, their sexual orientation, you know, some of those very, very basic large scale categories. But when you get to brass tacks, like what does that mean in a rehearsal room? Does that mean that you cannot microaggress people or does it mean that you can't pass people for certain roles? Like how does that actually work in an industry that is so dependent on a specific vision from a specific person? Or how does that work when you are in an industry that expects you to work, you know, odd hours and odd schedules with, you know, a varying degree of uh, safety. <laughs> I have to, Katya, this has been wonderful. I have to ask you before we sign off though, what is your favorite song in our first mistake? Oh, that is such a hard question. I think it has to be two strangers because mm. that harmony. <laughs> and sure. uh, I, I, I think it's, it's the harmony that gets me every time. And as I've been talking about those vague lyrics that could really mean absolutely anything to whoever is listening to it in that specific moment with their specific lens, I think is exactly what Kerrigan and Honor is all about. So it's got to be Two Strangers. It's a good pick. It's a, a trio, <laughs> which is also interesting. It's a song called Two Strangers, but it's a trio. They got mm -hmm. a lot going on. Part of me was kind of hoping exactly. you would say that you would say a mistake on, on the app just, just to be that way. But I, I appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate the honest answer. Just to be contrarian. <laughs> just to be, you know, just be like, you never see this coming. A mistake. That's my favorite. What is, what is yours? I'd love to know from, from a Oh, it's run away with movie. me. It's run away. It, it's run away with me. And, and it's the spring standards. Yeah, that makes sense. It. Yeah, that it is. Yeah, it's basic, but it's 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 the honest answer to that. I'm most intrigued upon answer. repeated listenings with last week's alcohol, uh, but it is not a track that I will like. I've listened to it three times in the last day. I'm going to let it sit for a little while before I listen to it again. Nice. It's, See it's what it deep... means to you. That's right. <laughs> Kaya, tell people where they can find you on the internet. You can find me at kayalyons.com, K-A-I-Y-A-L-Y-O-N-S.com, or at kayalyonsesq on TikTok, where I talk about all things law and theater. And I'm always looking for new ideas and questions to answer. So you can find me there. Fantastic. Thank Kaya. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. This was absolutely fantastic. Would love to chat with you anytime about these very obscure ideas. Somewhere in a quiet little nook of this city. Slipping into something that's a little less like a disguise. You are not alone here. Open up your eyes We cannot sleep We'll just hold our breath tonight Two strangers Two
The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. Please rate and review the original cast on your podcatcher of choice. It's the easiest way to help other listeners find the show. Go to bit.ly slash originalcaststore for original cast merchandise like t-shirts, tote bags, and more. Become a patron of the original cast at patreon.com slash originalcastpod so you can listen to our bonus podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. On the socials, we're at originalcastpod. Special thanks to our social media manager, Bethany Zalecki. Hi, Bethany! But thanks to Kai Alliance for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn. And I can't. I have rehearsal. We cannot sleep. We'll just hold our breath tonight. Two strangers. 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 Oh, don't matter. It don't matter. Time will go La da 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 La da 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 da